You know, when our two kids, Emily and Joseph, were leaving home to go to college, Julie and I did like a lot of parents do. We worried. We worried about whether or not we had taught them enough, equipped them enough, disciplined them enough, laughed with them enough. In short, had we parented them enough to handle life apart from us? Because you never really know. I mean, when your kids go to college, that's kind of a parental final exam. And so it's a little dicey. And so I remember in particular a conversation that I had with Emily and one similar to it that I had with Joe two years later when I kind of sat down and I wanted them to understand how excited Julie and I were for them. And, And I remember telling Emily and then Joe, listen, the next four years of your life are an opportunity that you will never have again. Your life will get better and can get richer and deeper, but this is a unique window of life. So we want you to experience it. We want you to have a ball. I want you to play intramurals, sign up for campus organizations, make sure that you find a great church to plug into, a home away from home. But, everybody say but. Remember, school is your job. I wanted them to make sure that they understood. I said, never forget that why you are there is to go to class. For the next four years, school is your job. And I had this conversation because I couldn't help but thinking, you know, as they begin this four-year journey, My college career would have been so much different if I had listened to my mom who said something very similar to me and the difference it would have made in that nine-year experience that was college. (laughs) I'm teasing, of course. It wasn't nine. It wasn't four, but it wasn't nine. (laughs) But what if I told you here at the beginning of 2017, no matter where you are, no matter how old you are, how young you are, how this or how that, What if I told you that you, what if I told you that I have one job, that you just had one job to take care of when you get up and go on Monday morning tomorrow? Wouldn't that be unbelievable? Think about how clarifying that would be if you had just one job. How many of you are moms in the house? Let me just see a show of hands. Can you imagine if you only had one hat to put on all day tomorrow? Somebody help me preach. How, how clarifying. If you just had a one-sentence job description, be so clarifying. How, how simplifying would that be if you had one job? One job. What if I told you that not only do you have only one job, but that 2017 would be the year that God would meet your most profound personal needs, that that whatever dreams and desires you have in this new year, this is the year God's going to meet those dreams and desires. And what if additionally I were to tell you that in 2017, this is the year that God will answer your most poignant and heartfelt prayer 
What, what if I told you that, that this is the year where all of those things, your one job, your wants and needs and desires, your, your prayers all intersected at, at, a, at a supernatural confluence of rivers, and this was the year that everything comes together. And that where everything comes together is the intersection of your, and for me, for my, one job. Wouldn't that be unbelievable? You know, I remember when I was 15 years old, I asked the pastor of the church where I grew up in Houston, Dr. Ed Young at Second Baptist in Houston, who happens to be Julie, my wife's uncle. I remember asking Dr. Young, I said, Dr. Young, how do you know God's will for your life? It's a good question, isn't it? Now, I, I shared this with our students at, at Beach Week last year, but I'll never forget his answer. Now, for those of you who have never seen Dr. Young on television or, or heard him in person, let me just tell you, he is a strong personality. I mean, strong. And when I asked him, how do you know God's will, I'll never forget. He, he took that big South Mississippi paw and put it on my shoulder and then he took his other pointer finger and he said, Mac, partner. Now, when he calls you partner, that is serious business. He said, partner, let me tell you how you know that. So I'm 15 years old. I'm like, okay. He goes, first of all, you love God with everything you've got, your heart, your soul, your mind. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, well, Yes, okay, yes, sir. I mean, this is, he's going, he's diving deep in a hurry. We started with the Bible. I mean, who knows where this is going? He goes, you love God with your heart, soul, and mind. And then he took his hand off of my shoulder, and he kind of smiled and just relaxed. And that scared me. He goes, and then, Mac, you do whatever you want to do. Now, at 15 years old, I was still a little bit scared. But internally, very privately, I remember thinking to myself, are you kidding me? That's the best you got to do whatever you want to do. Okay, cool. Thanks, Dr. Young. As I said, that was internal. But can I tell you that in a thousand little moments and some big moments since then, I have discovered just how absolutely right he was because remember the caveat that he placed at the beginning of that council he said love God with everything you've got your heart that's your emotions which by the way is where most of us make every single decision we make we like to think that we're very rational and very logical as we make choices and decisions when in reality we ain't now it helps when we are but I just thought I'd point that out. So love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul. That's your identity. That's who God made you to be. But also with all of your mind. Do not check your brain at the door of the Christian faith. You bring your common sense. You bring your intellect. Some of us are bringing more. Some of us don't have quite so much. But we bring whatever we have. And we love God with all of it. And then do whatever you want to do. That is our one job. Now, when we say you had one job, most of us are probably familiar with the internet memes that are out there. If you have a, 
Wi-Fi connection, you've seen, you know, the, the messed up tasks or the misplaced, mispainted road signs. Instead of stop, it was sop and, and all those kind of things. And they're kind of cute and clever and they chew up more time than they should on Facebook. But when we say you had one job, as we launched this new year, as we as a church family launched this new series of messages, we're actually digging and penetrating to the very core of who we are, the reason for our existence, why we exist, why we get up and go every single morning. And really, this is all at the heart of the Christian faith. No matter where you are spiritually, if you're a longtime veteran or you're here kicking the tires, every single one of us has one job. How many of you have ever heard of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Let me just see a show of hands. If you're like my wife, you grew up Presbyterian. We have very few former recovering Presbyterians in the room. <laughs> well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is a really fascinating document. It was written in 1647, and it was a product of the Reformation. The Reformation, of course, was people like Martin Luther and John Calvin struggling and striving to bring the church back to its essence, back to its doctrinal bottom line, if you will, and trying to do away with a lot of the man-made baggage and garbage that was cluttering up and actually distracting people from a genuine faith in Christ. And one of the tools that they developed was the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And all it was was a series of questions and answers to help people, and especially young people, understand the essentials, the, the non-negotiables and the irreducibles of the Christian faith so that they could get at the heart of the Christian faith and specifically how to live it out. And I tell you that by way of background because the very first Q&A question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is connected to our one job. Here's the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The first question is this, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? In other words, why are you here? In other words, why do you exist now, that, that's a really profound question. I mean, we're talking philosophy 101, 201, and 301 all rolled into one there. Why are you here? What is the chief end of man? And in this particular context in 1637, obviously, it is man and woman. What is the, what is the purpose of humanity? Why are we here? Here's how the Westminster Shorter Catechism answers this question. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man, the main reason we're here is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now for some in 1647 as well as in 2017, this is a revolutionary, radical concept. Most of us could probably get to glorify God. God wants to be glorified. He's God. We're not. I get that. But to enjoy him, to, to enjoy God forever? Some of you are thinking, 
man, if I'd have known that when I was a kid, I wouldn't have quit going to church. Tell your neighbor right now with New Year's passion and enthusiasm, you got one job. You got one job. Now, look back at the same person and tell them this, don't mess it up. Now, it's very, very important that we understand the Westminster Shorter Catechism is not on a common plane with Scripture. It's not the same as the Bible. Scripture is given to us by God. All Scripture is God-breathed. That means that God inspired every word of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. But the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, in fact, rooted in Scripture. Specifically here, look in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Romans is the sixth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. And in Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul, who is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is a supernatural transaction that's going on, Paul is summarizing where he's been. Now, if you've never read the entire book of Romans, let me just tell you by way of background, it is a philosophical, intellectual work of genius. Paul builds a case intellectually, philosophically for the Christian faith, including the history of humanity, including the role of Israel in that history, and God's working to bring about forgiveness and redemption through Jesus. And from chapters 1 through chapter 11, Paul has been building this case, but this is where Paul puts a bow on the case. It's not the end of the book of Romans, but look at how he summarizes his case so far. Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Say amen. Amen, amen is just an old word that means let it be so. Let it be so. For from him are all things. Everything good in this world comes to us from God. Everything. God did not invent disease. He did not create sin. Everything good and perfect God gave to us. For from him are all things. Through him are all things. That means that not only is God the source and the origin, he's also the pipeline. He's made sure that we get everything that we need. And since everything is from him and everything is through him, may everything be to him. To him be all glory and honor forever. Amen. Let it be. You see, what Paul is telling us here is that worship is our why. Worship is our why. Now, a lot of us, when we think about worship, we think about Sunday morning. And we think about singing. We think about trying to keep a rhythm with the bands clapping. We think about all those kind of things. And that's a part of worship. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus tells us that every single one of us, no matter who we are, no matter what our giftings, no matter what our passions, no matter what our experiences, all of us, 
our job is worship. So how I talk to Julie when nobody's around is an act of worship. How I discipline and hang out and laugh with our kids is an act of worship. How I prepare and work on a sermon, how we lead, whatever we may do, it is worship. Man, when Justin was singing just a few minutes ago, I, I was sitting there and I was, I was just blown away. But I had to, while he was singing, I had to enter into a time of confession. I did, because as I, he, was, he was singing, I began to covet that voice. I wish I could sing like that. I mean, I was just like, dude, if, if I could be that cool. I mean, I could get all the tats and, and grow the beard, but I, I'm just never going to be that cool. That's just not going to be me. And I'm sure this side of heaven not going to be able to sing like that. So I had to confess that out of my life, and then I came back into it. But I remember thinking while he was singing, what a gift and what courage for him to use that gift to glorify God while telling his story. And then I remembered every single one of us has a gift. Every single one of us is an artist of some sort. Most of us can't sing like that. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. I really believe that God did not give me that kind of musical ability because I would not have used it to glorify him. That was a joke. You should have laughed at that. <laughs> but by virtue of the fact that you, like, like me, by virtue of the fact that we were created in the image of God, we've all got an art inside of us that the world needs. We've all got a way to worship God with what we've got. And I love the fact that when Paul puts this bow on the arguments of chapters 1 through 11 in Romans, he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, hey, worship is your why, good luck, let me know how it goes. But immediately following this, in chapter 12, he shows us how to do it. Look at, look at what he says. He says, therefore... I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and perfect will. Every single time that we gather together on the weekends, we go to God's word to see how the gospel, how a relationship with Jesus plays out Monday through Saturday. What does it look like? Because the fact of the matter is it's too good to leave on the shelf six days a week. This is not just a Sunday morning thing. This is a 24-7, all day, every day kind of thing. And Paul is showing us how to do that. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, the first thing you learn right there is that worship responds. Worship is a response to God. We, we understand the mercy that he's given us in Jesus 
We don't deserve the forgiveness of God. We don't deserve the grace of God, and yet he has given it to us. And so we respond with worship in view of God's mercy because of who he is. Who, who he is. Worship him in view of God's mercy. Worship him. God's mercy. In Lamentations chapter 3, the Bible tells us that God's mercies are new every day. Every single day that you get up and draw breath, that I do, is an opportunity to reflect on, to receive, and to reflect outwardly the mercies of God. And when you really stop and think about everything that God has done for you, the initial first response is worship. Look at what you've done for me. Justin shared something with me between services that I, I think is so fascinating. He said, man, he goes, I, I can't tell you the difference that God's made in my life, my relationship with Jesus. He said, he goes, I, I've, you know, I've traveled, I've done the rock star thing, but like now I love it when I get to take out the trash for my wife. He goes, how cool is it? Because I know there are a lot of people that don't have a wife to take the trash out for, and my wife stuck with me and she didn't have to. That, that's, a, that's a tender mercy. That, that's, that's something. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I'm going to need a little bit more than that. <laughs> okay, well, how about this? How about the fact that Jesus Christ died on a cross for you so that you could be forgiven of every sin that you don't want anybody to know about? Tender mercies, new Every day. When you consider that, you respond in worship. I urge you, in light of God's mercy, offer your bodies. Number two, worship works. Worship works. We, we don't just kind of sit back and go, oh, God's awesome. He's the best. We actually get out and do something with what he's given to us. Love the Lord your God with all of your soul, heart, soul, and mind. You offer your body as a living sacrifice. So when you get up and go to work on Monday, or maybe you get up and go to class tomorrow. Ooh, I know, Christmas holiday's over. Sorry. That's an opportunity for worship. That, that's an opportunity to, to take your workspace and turn it into a worship space. So, man, I'm, I'm pushing papers. I'm entering data. That's okay. Do it with joy. Do it for God and not just for your boss. Because worship works. Number three, worship submits. Worship submits. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means that you surrender to the will of God. You surrender your will to God's will. And you choose to trust God more than your gut. You choose to decide that God's will, God's word, biblically, is more reliable, it's more dependable than our wants. Our wants, man, they they come and go with our emotions, with fads and fashions. But the word and the will of God is forever. 
It is constant. It is dynamic. And so worship is submitting to God. It's saying, you're God and I'm not, and I will trust you. That's God's love language. Obedience is the love language of God. And worship is just submitting to that. Offering myself, offering everything that I want, everything that I think, everything that I say, everything that I do as an expression of worship. But then look at what Paul says going further. He he doesn't leave it right there. He says, worship also renews us. It, It refreshes us. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When we worship God, it feeds something deep inside of us that nothing else can. You know how I know that? This morning when we were singing the very first song, Rooftops, it's one of our favorite songs as a church family. We almost have rhythm on on rooftops. I'm sitting right down here in the front row. I can hear y'all singing rooftops. And you're letting it fly as an expression of worship. We're going to shout it from the rooftops. We're going to shout it from the rooftops. We're going to shout it from the rooftop. There's something that happens when we worship, whether in song or in deed, that renews and refreshes our soul like nothing else. That's why being the church every day, all day, feeds our souls. The Bible tells us that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And so when we when we feed that part of our hearts, it, it renews us, it refreshes us. This isn't, this isn't rote, this isn't a burden, this isn't drudgery. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to worship the God who created us, who created us on purpose with a, pers- with a purpose. And so we worship him in that way. And that worship renews us, it refreshes us. But there's one more thing that Paul says here. It says, and then, say then. Then "Then you will know his good and perfect and pleasing will. See, worship satisfies. Worship satisfies us. And so worship can infuse the most mundane, menial task and chore at work or at school or at home with a purpose and even a passion that we didn't even know. We, we hoped maybe was available to us, but maybe we're afraid to ask. It's found in and through worship, our one job. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. You have one job. Glorify God with everything that you've got. You see, the essence and the heart of the gospel of Jesus infuses, it injects every part of life with meaning and purpose and passion. And when worship is your why, 
you can get through a lot of the stuff that can beat you down otherwise. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. And as you bow your head in an act of reverence before God, I want to ask you, if you would, with, with no one moving or being a distraction for any reason, this is too important. If you're here today and you've never stepped into a relationship with Christ, we want to give you the opportunity to do just that. You don't have to attend a class. It's very simple to do. You just have to submit to Jesus. Submit, and in that submitting, you commit to follow him. To worship him in everything that you do. If you've never made that commitment and surrendered in that way, we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Just to pray right where you're sitting. Just silently talk to God. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I commit my life. I confess my sin. And I receive your forgiveness, your grace. And I will follow you from this moment forward. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed for just a moment more, if that's your prayer today and you mean it, you're in a great place for that moment. Because we want to be a family of faith around you, with you, for you. And so if that was your prayer, I want to just ask you before you leave today to do a couple of things. Number one, would you just let us know that how we can help by taking the program that you got when you came in and filling out the connect card, your name and contact info, and then just indicate there about halfway down, I committed my life to Christ this week. And then you just tear that off at the perforation, at the fold, and before you leave, hand it to one of our ushers, one of our hosts, and just briefly, just say, hey, today was my day. And then second of all, as we remain in a sacred moment with our heads bowed, if that was your prayer and you meant it today, would you just take a moment and raise your hand quietly but high over your head, hold your hand up, and as you do, know that you're marking this moment in your life, but also in the life of this church. Because for us as a church, there's nothing more important than that. And so as a 
a family. We honor that and we celebrate it. As you put your hands down, we like to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.